It's by far the most requested, recited, beloved passage in all the Bible. I've been looking forward to getting to this one. It invokes trust and peace and comfort and strength and hope and joy. All in six verses, the 23rd Psalm. I want you to turn there now in your Bibles. The 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, it doesn't matter how many times I hear those words, read those words. Every time it is like being surrounded by a great comfort. There is a peace, Father, inherent in this song that is unlike any other. And we are so thankful, Holy Spirit, that You would inspire David to write such words. Father, we just appreciate the life that David lived. We appreciate Your decision, Lord, to pour Your Spirit out upon this man early on in his life that he might see things in a way that no one else around him saw things. That he might see literally Jesus and talk about Him and prophesy of Him and trust in Him. And we want the same. We want to be men and women after Your own heart, Father. And in this song for all followers, Lord, I pray this morning that You would just lift our eyes to look to You again and shore up our trust in You one more time. Father, though we have Your Holy Spirit, it seems that week to week, boy, a few days go by from our times of worship and fellowship together and I need more. A few hours go by, Father, and I recognize I need more of Your Word, not less. A few years of my life go by and I find myself more hungry and more desirous to be close to You and to walk with You in every moment as You lead us through this life. Sweet Spirit of Christ Jesus, we pray this morning that You will teach us more. That You will lead us for the next however long through these words and to the intentions of Your heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's no doubt as to the writer of this psalm. We know it's David. However, there is quite a bit of debate as to when he wrote it. And as we're going through the psalms, I'm trying to show you, trying to point out where most people think, well, this was probably written here or probably written there, but the 23rd psalm could be written at just about any point in David's life. Scholars, commentators, rabbis, they they don't agree. 
And depending on who you like or who you listen to, you'll get a different opinion almost every time. Some say it was written by a shepherd boy. Well, it makes sense. The Lord is my shepherd. makes sense that David might write that as a young man. Verse 2, they're describing lazy days and green pastures and quiet waters. Sounds shepherd-like. Some say, no, no, it was written by a slinger of stones. As verse 4 references the valley of the shadow of death as David went into the valley of Elah to face Goliath. There, that valley sometimes referred to as the valley of death, the valley of warfare, the valley of battle and darkness. And some say, no, he, he took out Goliath and then he sat down and he wrote this psalm. Others say, now verse 3 speaks of a restored soul and paths of righteousness. Sounds more like David after his great sin with Bathsheba in that place of repentance, Psalm 51, verse 12, where he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a a willing spirit. Perhaps, some would say it's written by a stressed out king. And verse 5 mentions a table prepared before me in the presence of my enemies. And as David fled Jerusalem, pursued by Absalom and his henchmen, trying to usurp his father's throne... 2 Samuel 17, verse 27, gives us some insight into something that happened. As David and, and, his, and his cohorts there, his comrades, fled through and, and got outside of Jerusalem. It says, when he had come to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, and Machir, the son of Amiel, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, brought basins and pottery and wheat, flour, barley, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd, for David and the people who were with him to eat. And what's interesting is, as David fled from Absalom in that time, this first name mentioned is a guy by the name of Shobi, son of Nahash. Well, Nahash was king of the Ammonites. Shobi then was part of the enemies of Israel. And so David might have written, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Shepherd boy, Slinger of stones, sinner restored, a stressed out king, or perhaps, and this is where I lean, this psalm was actually written by a seasoned sovereign. Verse 6 seems to be the words of a man preparing to go home. Surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A man who's seeing that as the place above all places to be, the place his heart longs for. And perhaps this was one of David's final psalms, a pinnacle of prayer, tower of trust, very simple and yet more poignant, I believe, than any other psalm ever written. This one is the apex of the faith of David. Maybe that's part of the attraction of this psalm. That it could have been written by a shepherd boy or a slinger of stones or a sinner restored, a stressed out king or a sovereign seasoned man it could have been any of these points in David's life and the beauty of the 23rd Psalm is it speaks to any season of our lives it doesn't seem to matter what age you are what position you're in what your status is we open up and we begin to hear the words of this Psalm and recognize it's a Psalm for all seasons let's look at it verse 1 the Lord is my shepherd. Whether written by a shepherd boy or a seasoned sovereign of Israel, David bore the responsibility of a shepherd. He knew what that meant. He had a flock to look after. 
As a young man, a flock of sheep. As an older man, the flock of all of the house of Israel. And clearly, he understood something. Clearly, David knew from watching sheep and subjects that he himself needed a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, I may have some responsibility to shepherd here or shepherd there, but the Lord is my shepherd. And that says something about us. I need a shepherd. Don't you? I mean, when it all comes down, don't we all ultimately really need a shepherd? We like to think we're independent, self-starters, able to handle it on our own, but the truth is, we need a shepherd. And among all animals, one of the defining characteristics of sheep is that they're immensely dumb. They're absolutely stupid and This is the animal most often in Scripture we are compared to. (laughs) A few years ago, uh, I got an email from a man who did not like the fact that we call our elders shepherds. And he gave the reason why he didn't like it. It means that I'm a sheep. Are you offended to be called a sheep? Better get used to it. Psalm 95 verse 7 says, He is our God and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Psalm 100 verse 3, Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Jesus said in Luke 12 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And in John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Hey, if you don't want to be called sheep, listen, Jesus laid down His life for the sheep. And if you're not one of the sheep, well, then you're outside of that picture, aren't you? I have other sheep. Jesus talking now, going beyond the sheep of the house of Israel. I have other sheep. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock that is Jew and Gentile with one shepherd. But why are we so often compared to sheep in the Bible? Well, it's not just our stupidity. (laughs) It's probably also because we have such a tendency to wander. We wander off. Isaiah 53, verse 6, we just sang this, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. You, me, David, we need a shepherd. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Hmm. I want a lot of stuff. I find myself wanting often. I want a lot of things that I've yet to acquire, but that's not what it means. The word kasar in the Hebrew is literally lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. And the faithful sheep looks to the shepherd and recognizes this truth, I shall not lack. In a powerful word in Psalm 84.11, it says the Lord, does, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Again, hmm. But but I've known lack. At least by my standards. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. But there have been times in my life where it seemed like I lacked. Listen, I think there's an important truth here, and that is this. Whatever I have is exactly what I'm supposed to have. At whatever point in my life. Whether I have little or I have much. The Lord has blessed me with what He recognizes I need. I shall not lack. I may disagree. And I have. Lord, I am truly lacking in this area. And He's saying, no you don't. No you're not. You don't lack. There are times, well, my kids are a good example of this. And if you've parented at all, you know this. That your kids often will want something and you're not about to provide it. But my children want for nothing. They want a lot of things, but they want for nothing. They lack for nothing. And there's a word for the person who can say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. I do not want for anything. And that word is simply contentment. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Godliness is a great means a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can not take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And sitting here in the barn as the rain was coming down, I've shared this before, I remember praying that the Lord would provide a place for this fellowship to begin meeting. And thinking if we had to meet in a field on October the 8th of 2003, so be it, we'll have Bible study in a field, which is a great place for sheep to have a Bible study. (laughs) And yet he provided this barn. And I remember that first winter, Wednesday nights, freezing in here, and hearing the rain just pound on the barn as we just heard it this morning, and thinking, wow, it's not a cathedral, it's not a big church. But we do not lack. God provided everything we needed at that point. He's provided everything we need at this point. And by the way, understanding this, grasping godly contentment, this will have a greater impact on your ability to trust the Lord in your giving than anything else. Don't talk a lot about giving. You know we don't pass the plate. We've got the box in the back. and It's there between you and the Lord for you to give your tithes, your offerings based on where you're at in your faith. But trusting the Lord is what tithing is about. Recognizing, I shall not lack. Even if I cough up 10% that I don't have, I don't see how it will work. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Let me ask you, do you believe Jesus when He said, your heavenly Father knows you need all these things? I want to encourage you, if you feel like you're lacking, if you're struggling with finances, if you're struggling with your life situation, to go read Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33, where Jesus compares God's giving to the birds of the air who are always fed, the lilies of the field who are always clothed, even in a splendor greater than Solomon's. And he goes on to say, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well, will be provided, will be given because the Father knows what you need. Do you have a relationship with the Father such that he is your shepherd and you shall not want? If we can enter into that kind of relationship with God, then our giving is no big deal. It's only a big deal when we're holding on to it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack except this month. (laughs) Don't have it right now. 
No, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. You know, sheep have a tendency in their dumbness to be attracted to bright colors. Like so many of us who are ADD. Look, a shiny dime. You know, we're off and we're just lost. And What were we talking about there? Were we praying? Because I was just wandering there. And in the Middle Eastern landscape, there are a lot of bright colors, even in the heat of summer. And the sheep will head toward those. But unfortunately, some of those bright colors, purple flowers, bright yellow flowers, will actually be poisonous weeds that the sheep ought not to eat, but will head for anyway. And so, at times, shepherds literally would have to barricade their sheep into pasture areas where the grass was green. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I'm off looking for the pretty colorful stuff. And He makes me lie down where the food is good and healthy for the sheep. The green pastures. I like this verse, Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. What does that imply? It means until I was afflicted, I was wandering off, but then I had a little affliction. Maybe some thickets, maybe a barricade, something I couldn't get through. You can imagine a sheep in the green pasture looking over at the colorful plants on the other side of perhaps a thicket that the shepherd had built himself to wall the sheep in. And he gets poked by the thorns and he's like, but the pretty stuff's over there. But the good food is right here. Before I was afflicted, I wandered all over the place. But now I keep your word. He makes me lie down. He keeps me from wandering off to the bright and shiny things. And I might end up poked a little bit. But I will not be poisoned by the world. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Now the King James completely misses this. Because the version that so often we hear is, He leaves me beside still waters. And that's not the right translation. That's not the right implication. The Hebrew for water here is mayim, and it is a very specific word. It indicates flowing waters, not still waters. And the problem with still waters is they can be bitter, or diseased, or deadly. Standing water, if you're a hiker, you know you don't drink standing water. Rushing, cascading, flowing water, probably okay to drink. Because it has a tendency to wash out the disease or the, or the things in it that, that might upset the stomach or bring about sickness. Mayim, flowing, moving waters. Remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman? There at the well in Samaria, He said, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. John 4, verse 13. In verse 14 he said, But whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life, fresh, flowing, constantly moving, mayim, moving water. He leads me beside quiet waters. But those waters continue to roll. Verse 3. He restores my soul. Man, our souls need restoration. And I'm talking about on an ongoing basis. Even after our spirits are saved and secured for salvation, our souls need restoration. What do you mean? You Bible students know this. We've talked much about this. That we have spirit, soul, and body. Our spirit is truly who we are. That which is born again to to life eternal. 
Our soul is the intellect, the reason, the, the seat of emotion in our lives. It's where we're the most stubborn. It's where we're the most stupid. It's where we tend to wander off. It's where we're the most self-directed is in the soul. Man, I overthink things all the time. Cheryl can tell you this. And the soul needs restoring on an ongoing basis. Not salvation. I've been saved. But I need restoring. Because my soul is also what takes in the language in those movies. You know, the, the visualization, the things I, I wish I hadn't seen. The conversations I shouldn't have had. And that stuff starts to stick in our brains and we need to wash it clean. Paul says in Romans 12:2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. He says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the Word. And in Hebrews 10.26, He says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He restores the soul. Not the psychiatrist. Not the medical doctor. Not the friends who who care and want to help us work through our problems. And not ourselves. He restores our soul. He sets our minds aright. How does He do this? How does the Lord my shepherd accomplish this? He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. I love this phrase, in the paths of righteousness. The word paths there is literally tracks. In other words, grooves that we fall into and follow. That are not easy to wander if we will get into the tracks of His righteousness. He has it laid out for you. He has the direction set in motion. All you have to do is follow in those tracks. But, but what is the right path? What are these tracks laid out before me? Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, I think, gives us insight. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. You want a soul restored, a soul that is restful. You walk in the ancient paths, the old ways. And I think the church needs to get back to the old ways. The ancient paths. But Jeremiah 6.16 ends this way, but they said, we will not walk in it. I'd rather just wander through the forest. I just want to skip along the hilltops. You know, until I'm stuck on a rocky crag, ready to fall to my death as sheep may do. He says there are paths laid out for you. The ancient paths. Walk in them. Israel was straying there in the day of Jeremiah. In a bad way. And the Lord said, if you want restoration, go back to the ancient paths. The old ways. The ways that are unchanging. And this is especially apropos in the world in which we live today. Where everybody's looking for the newest thing. The newest buzz. Even in faith circles. We desperately need the ancient tracks. I I ran across this. In fact, uh, Thursday night at our shepherds meeting, we were... We were watching part of the Truth Project. We're going to tell you more about that. If you've seen the Truth Project, you know what I'm going to share. If you haven't seen it, you need to. It's fantastic. And we're talking about 
showing it this fall and, and giving opportunity for people to see it. But in it, the, the teacher is talking about the New England Primer. It was the second most read book in America, 1777. Second to the Bible. I don't know if we can say that today. Well, I know we couldn't say it about the New England Primer. But let me just give you a little excerpt here. In the early pages of it, the New England Primer was the teaching manual. Every school child had it, which is why everybody read it. And this is what teachers used and what they trained the kids on, especially where language was concerned. Listen to this. A lesson for children from the New England Primer, 1777. You can buy one of these online. Pray to God. Public school. Public school. Pray to God. Call no ill names. Love God. Use no ill words. Fear God. Tell no lies. Serve God. Hate lies. Take not God's name in vain. Speak the truth. Spend your time well. Do not swear. Love your school. Do not steal. Mind your book. Cheat not in your play. Strive to learn. Play not with bad boys. And I like this last one. Be not a dunce. (laughs) From there it goes on and begins to teach the alphabet. You want to know how it was done? A. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. B. Heaven to find the Bible in mind. C. Christ crucified for sinners died. D. The deluge drowned the earth around. And it goes all the way down, walking you through the Bible and biblical stories to learn the alphabet till you get to Z. Zacchaeus, he did climb the tree our Lord to see. I was not taught that in public school. I doubt any of you were. And yet, in our country, that was standard textbook for elementary school children. The New England Primer. And that was just a couple hundred years ago. Boy, we've progressed. We've grown. We've, we've modernized. We are intellectually stronger. We have gone so far forward. Listen, the paths of righteousness, the ancient paths go back much further than 1777. The ancient ways go all the way back. Hebrews 13 verse 8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He hasn't changed. We have. And what did Jesus say? He said in Matthew 11.29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am humble and gentle in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Quoting Jeremiah 16 verse 6. Jesus is the ancient path. Jesus is the path of righteousness. And what's interesting, we read, He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. That word restores is literally to bring back. To bring back. We have lost so much ground in this country where Christ is concerned. I said last week that this was a Christian nation founded on Christian principles with Christ at the lead, and it was early on. And it is absolutely tragic how quickly it's changed. Dewey, decimal system. John Dewey was an atheist, believed, quoted, 
did not believe in God at all, was anti-creator. So much has been altered from the ancient paths. But again, go back further. You go back to Jesus. We need to bring back simple things. Bible study. Fellowship with believers. and Communion. Prayer. And most of all, knowing Jesus. These are the things. You want a vision for the Bridge Christian Fellowship? That's it. Simple things. It's not to have the most programs. It's not to have the most exciting things going on. It's not to be the most colorful church or the biggest cathedral or any of that. It's back to the basics of faith in Jesus Christ. In the Word. In prayer. In fellowship. In communion. The ancient paths. It really is that simple. But I I see church after church after church attempting to reinvent the wheel, assuming that innovation and relevance need to be recreated and, and that we've got to go down these roads. We need to get back to the paths of righteousness. Why? For His name's sake. It's not even for us. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. You see, the church is not here for intellectual stimulation, a theological novelty. That's not why we gather. It's not for personal entertainment. We exist for His name's sake. And I'm talking about as Christians. Our existence as saved people exists for His name's sake because our salvation glorifies Him. Any good we do honors Him. Our praise, our worship, it magnifies our God. It is for His name's sake. You know what's absolutely amazing? That the Lord, my shepherd, has chosen to glorify Himself and reveal His grace even in the need of Him who submits to His guidance. That's what Kylan Delich said. Even in the need of Him who submits to His guidance. In other words, God is glorified as I submit to Him. God is worshipped and magnified as I bow down and call Him my shepherd, my Lord. It's for His name's sake. It's all about Him. And our submission, it allows the glory of God to shine. Our willingness to repent and to seek restoration of our souls reveals His grace. Ephesians 2 verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for His name's sake. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. This is one powerful verse. Even if I'm in Death Valley, (laughs) if the valley where, where the shadows lie, even in that place, gang, there is proof positive that the Lord my shepherd is there with me in the valley. What do you mean? Because it's the valley of shadows. And you don't have shadows unless you have light. And the Lord my shepherd is there. And when the shadows are around, and and listen, I know shadows, they indicate predators and, and danger and darkness and things unknown behind that rock or behind that hill or down here where I'm, I'm feeling, you know, anxiety. 
I'm worried. I'm feeling unprotected. And the valley of the shadow of death, man, that sounds so terrifying, threatening, and tangible, but it's not. What's the threat of the valley? Shadows. Anybody ever gotten into a fight with your shadow? See, I tried to as a child. It never worked. Every time I took a swing, he swung too. And we never seemed to make contact. He's just a shadow. The valley of the shadow, the, the threat, the terror is all that it is. It's just threat and terror. Shadows can freak us out. They can stop our hearts for a moment. Especially walking home from the barn late on a Wednesday night. I've had it happen a few times. I'll just admit to you, especially in the dark of winter, if I'm walking home and we forget to turn the little light by the fence on, and it's dark out there. (laughs) And everything out there is moving. You know, I see that it's dark by the path, it's darker over into the trees, and then I hear, shh. (laughs) Quicken my pace. It's amazing. Once I get through that gate, it's, it's great. I remember getting through the gate and heading up the hill toward my house and all of a sudden a rabbit or some little stupid animal (laughs) just kind of took off. And I was like, (laughs) run home. It's just shadows. It's the appearance of danger. But the light is there. And the light casts the shadows. The enemy attempts to whisper from these places anxiety, worry, fear, stress. All you have to do in the valley of shadows is turn on the light. Turn to the light. What was the first command of God? Let there be light. And there was light. First words of the Lord recorded in Scripture. Let there be light. Because when light is present, darkness flees. It's not the other way around. Darkness doesn't invade light. Light pushes back against the darkness. We don't turn on the dark. We don't have dark bulbs. We don't hang dark fixtures in our houses. Light drives away darkness. For God who said, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And this works even if you are having anxiety about something in your life. Then you turn to the light. You in that moment say, Jesus... Would you make your presence known to me? Jesus, I trust you. You are my shepherd, even in the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil. Shepherd's here. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know what a shepherd's staff looks like. It's that, it's that long staff with the crook on the top of it. What was the crook for? It was the early candy cane. For the... <laughs> the crook was for rescuing sheep. It was to draw them back. If a sheep got into a tight place or was on a cliff and the shepherd needed to pull him back, he could literally hook the sheep and gently pull him in. Oh, your staff comforts me because I start to wander off the path and I know you can reach me and I know it's you gently drawing me back to your side. The staff. The rod was different. The rod, the shepherd's rod was a short stick. And at the end of that short stick, maybe a couple feet long or so, at the end of the short stick was a big, thick, knobby protrusion. A hard place in the, in the wood. 
And the shepherds would use it, well, for a couple of reasons. One, for defense. They could take that stick and were very adept at just chucking it at predators. You know, a wolf comes by, bam, wolf takes off. And a lion is nearby, bam, takes them out. They were really good. And that, that was the, the rod that they had. It was for defense. It was also for discipline. Because that was the rod that the shepherd would use to break the legs of the sheep. Why would he do such a thing? Some of you know this. A lamb, a sheep that had a tendency to stray and stray and stray. You know, how many times does the shepherd leave the 99 and go after the one? And it's the same one. You know, dopey. (laughs) Brings him back and he wanders off. He brings him back and he wanders off. Looking for colorful, bright things, you know. And so what does the shepherd do? And they were known for this. They would use that rod and they would break the legs of the sheep. So that it could not wander off. (laughs) And then they would take that sheep and lift them up and put them over the shoulders and carry them. After binding up the broken leg, they'd bind it and wrap it tight so that the bone could mend and carry the sheep until the bone was completely mended. But by the time that happened, possibly several weeks, when he set the sheep down, the sheep was attached to the shepherd. And the sheep would wander no further and no more. David said in Psalm 51, verse 7, David, who was the shepherd, remember, he said, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. He's speaking to the Lord, his shepherd, and he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Jesus' bones were never broken, were they? He didn't need discipline. Because the Lord, our shepherd, knew exactly where he belonged. And that was as close to the shepherd, his father, as possible. Sometimes we need to get our bones broken. But can can you, like David, can you rejoice in broken bones? David says, make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. What? Man, my tendency is the exact opposite. The hard time comes and I'm like, Lord, what's going on? David says the hard times come and I worship all the more because I know God is disciplining me. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. And if you're being disciplined in your life, praise God. You know what He's saying to you? I love you too much to let you wander. I love you so much. I know, I know the broken bone hurts. It'll mend. But I did it for this reason, that you would attach to me. That you would draw near to me. The best way to walk through shadowy places is to stick close to the shepherd, either walking there right beside him or hanging out on his shoulders if your bones happen to be broken. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I just love this picture. And again, you have the picture there of David fleeing and, and Shobi coming out with the other guys and spreading a table before them, even as the enemies were pursuing, and even though some of these guys were enemies of Israel, providing for David, showing kindness to him. It's an interesting story. But there's a greater picture here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies that speaks of this, of this wonderful, joyful fellowship with the Lord. 
Jesus even said, for those who are mine at my coming, I'm going to serve you. You're going to sit at the table. I'm going to come up and I'm going to, can I get you anything else there to drink, Sean? You want to, can I take care of that? You know, can I refill your plate, Dan? Can I make sure you have enough here? And He spreads this table before us. Isaiah 25, verse 6 says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, Zion. A banquet of aged wine and choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And there's this wonderful and true notion of of the Lord spreading out that table before us at the coming wedding feast of the Lamb. But I believe the Spirit of Christ is saying something else through David. I often had read this verse in the past and thought you prepare a table before me and it's the table waiting for me in heaven. No, it's not. The table he's talking about here is in the presence of my enemies. Which means it's a table Jesus prepares now. In your life, immediately. Come and dine with me, he says. You know the famous verse, Revelation 3, 18, I believe it is. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door for me, I'll come in and we'll dine together. He's not talking to non-believers. He's talking to believers. He's talking to people in the church. He's saying, hey, let's, let's fellowship. I'm knocking. Will you let me in? I've prepared a table for you. fact, the first picture that we have in Scripture of that exact table is when Jesus dined for the last time with His apostles. You prepare a table for me. In the presence of my enemies. Jesus said in John 15, 18, on that evening, at that table, He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The enemies were lurking, even as Jesus and the apostles shared at that supper. Even as they dined at that table, the enemies were lurking there in Jerusalem, seeking to find a way to destroy Him. Judas had already left. He was making his way to the chief priests and the rulers of the people. To turn Jesus over, the enemy was fast at work. As He broke the bread and He passed the cup of wine that symbolized a a greater feast that we will share in the coming millennial kingdom, it symbolized the feast that we share, we shared this morning, and we will continue to share all the way up until Jesus returns again. And by the way, let me just point this out to you. The enemies that skulk about and lie in wait while we dine at the table are not the other sheep. They're not the other sheep. The other sheep are not our enemies. Other churches, other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ that we are connected to by faith in Jesus because He's our shepherd and we are all the sheep of His pasture. There are people in other churches in this area that I have a feeling annoy some of us. That some of us would say, enemy. No, no. The sheep are not your enemy. There is peace at the table. Where the oil flows, where the cup spills over, there is peace at the table. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Oh, there's still a prowling lion, Satan seeking those who he might devour. There's still wolves in sheep's clothing, those who would pretend or play roles. 
But the table is set and the people of His pasture are invited to dine in a place of peace. And only in the Lord can there ever be that kind of peace. Only in the presence of the shepherd, even in the face of enemy threats. You know, Paul said, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.7 Where does this peace come from? You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. David recognizes there's far more to his anointing than the right to be king over Israel. David knew this. His anointing changed him. David's anointing ushered in the Spirit of God into his life. You remember this, 1 Samuel 16, 13. The Samuel took that horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. David was truly a Spirit-filled, anointed man. But John says this, listen, every one of us, all sheep, pay attention. 1 John chapter 1, verse 20 tells us, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. You know you do. Do you? Do you know that? Do you know that you have an anointing from the Holy One in your life? If you don't know, perhaps you need to be born again. Because once you're born again, you are born of the Spirit. You have the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life. And if if you're not sure, John was so absolutely convinced that the recipients of his letter knew that they had been anointed by the Spirit of God, he added those few words, and you all know. You know know about your anointing. I don't have any need to even tell you this, but I'm going to. You have an anointing. And if you don't know you have an anointing, let me just share this. Perhaps that's why joy and peace are elusive to you. I don't speak this in judgment. I am not of those who say, well, there are those who have the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, and there are those who don't, and those who do are better and more righteous and more fulfilled. No. If you're in the body of Christ, you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. If you're unaware of that anointing, perhaps in your tradition, growing up, you learned about Scripture, and you learned about Jesus, and you set your mind forward in faith, but you never, you know, the Holy Spirit was just, you didn't really want much of that, because that was kind of weird and out there and different. You have an anointing. And we don't want to be among those who hold to a form of godliness while denying its power. You have anointed my head with oil. By the way, side note, shepherds would do this with their sheep. They'd anoint them? Yeah. Because sheep would get these little bugs, crawl up the nose, and lay their eggs in the nose. Those little eggs would hatch and the larva would wriggle around in there sometimes make their way up toward the brain and it would drive the sheep nuts a little fly that would do this and the shepherds knew at the time of year when this would occur you know late spring early summer this was coming around and they had this this stuff that they would put on the head of the sheep that literally would kind of clog their noses and protect against these nasty little flies you anoint my head with oil. Just want to get a little more graphic for you so you get the full picture. <laughs> the anointing of the Holy Spirit will guard against those annoyances in your mind. Those things that distract you from being able to pay attention 
to the voice and hear the voice of the shepherd. You have an anointing and you all know. And if you don't know, before we're done this morning, you need to say, Lord, anoint me with your spirit. I want that. I want that protection. I want that covering. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now this is part of the guarantee of the anointing of the Spirit of God. An overflowing cup. A cup of of joy. Psalm 45 verse 7. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Isaiah 61 verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus would quote this, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, and in verse 3 he says, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So part of the anointing that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and by the Spirit is the oil of joy. And where the Spirit is, there is joy in liberty, good things. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Was David being pursued by Absalom's henchmen when he wrote this psalm? Possibly. Was he looking back and recalling those days when he was fleeing from Saul? Maybe. Was he considering times when he had to pull back because the enemy was riding hard on his tail? Maybe. But it doesn't matter. What David writes here is astounding. He knew what was really behind him all the time. It never was the enemy. It was goodness and loving kindness. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me. You see, Satan would try to make you think that he's following you. That he's got your tail. That he's tracking your movements. Wickedness, sorrow, dark things... He would try to put there, right behind you, following along the way. And you look back and you think, oh, but I'm just, just not good here. David says, now, if the Lord is your shepherd, goodness and loving kindness follow you all the days of your life. David didn't have to look over his shoulder in paranoia or fear or discouragement or guilt about what was back there. Because goodness and mercy were there. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Did you notice that the psalm took a turn? They're long about verse 5. Verses 1 through 4 are all about the Lord who is my shepherd. But from verse 5 on, suddenly he's the Lord, my host. He's the Lord who prepares a table. He's the Lord who anoints my head. He's the Lord who fills my cup to overflowing. He is the Lord who provides the place of my dwelling. The Lord is now not just my shepherd getting me through, leading me, guiding me through this life. He's my host preparing His house for my arrival. And the span of this psalm is so wonderful because David takes us literally from green pastures to the Father's house. John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house, Jesus said, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Paul put it this way. 
This could almost be a summing up of the 23rd Psalm. He said, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning. And I actually would like to ask you to respond by standing up. If if this is your desire. And the question is, how many of you would like to be brought safely into His heavenly kingdom? (laughs) Maybe you think that's a (laughs) no-brainer. While we stand, there's something I need you all to understand this morning, and it's very important here with the 23rd Psalm. This psalm is often quoted at funerals. In fact, it's probably the most quoted passage in Scripture for funeral services. And people will use this because the the psalm itself, as we've talked about, as we've seen, it brings so much peace and comfort with it. It evokes a sense of serenity, of stillness, of well-being, of green pastures and still quiet waters. It indicates a shepherd's care. But this is what we need to understand. This psalm, though it is a psalm for all seasons, is not a psalm for all people. What do you mean? Psalm 23 is not a psalm for just any and everybody. Psalm 23 is actually part of a trilogy that includes Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. And they all together tell one shepherd's story. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And Psalm 22, which we looked at Wednesday night, is the psalm of the cross. The good shepherd who dies for his sheep. Who puts himself in harm's way to save his sheep. That's Psalm 22. That's where it begins. Psalm 23 is the psalm of the great shepherd. Who then leads his sheep from his resurrection all the way to his father's house. Hebrews 13, verse 20 says, The God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus our Lord, He will equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The psalm of the good shepherd, He who died for us. The psalm of the great shepherd, He who leads us now in this life. And Psalm 24 that we will get to next week. It's the psalm of the chief shepherd. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.4, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, the chief shepherd is coming. The good shepherd died. The great shepherd leads. The chief shepherd is coming. And in this trilogy, this wonderful story of the shepherd, you need to understand, I need to get this Psalm 23 is only for you if the Lord is your shepherd. If He's not, you can read it anytime you want and it evokes a false peace. Because it is not for anyone who is not willing to follow the shepherd. You have to know the Good Shepherd and believe in what He did before you can be led by the Great Shepherd through the paths of this life to the very coming of the chief shepherd. So I ask you this morning, can you say, the Lord is my shepherd?
Can you say that in your heart? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? And if you can, praise God. Wonderful. But if you have never claimed Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, your Shepherd, then I'm just pleading with you not to leave here this morning until you do. Because you cannot claim this psalm until you first claim the Shepherd. Let's bow. Lord Jesus, You know it all begins with us admitting that we are sinners and straying sheep. That we go our own way. But that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on You. And this morning it is our desire to once again proclaim to You, Lord Jesus, You are our Shepherd. And in saying that, what we're asking is would you lead us? What we are declaring is we will follow you. We will not be like Israel in the days of Jeremiah saying we're not going to walk in the ancient paths. No, we want to walk in the ancient paths of the ancient one, Jesus Christ. The ancient of days. We desire to be led by you. And to follow after You, whatever that means, Lord Jesus. Lord, You know where each of our hearts are this morning. You know where each of us are having trouble following. You know where we've wandered. And I ask that You will either draw us back gently or break our legs if You have to. That we might be more attached to You the Lord our Shepherd. In Jesus' name, Amen.